as is my custom, it is May the 22nd, 2022, and whether you use AD or CE, you still have 2022, so it doesn't matter. The world still counts time by Jesus, and that's pretty amazing. Okay, so we're in uh, John chapter 19. Let's have a Let's have a word of prayer and we will begin. Dear Father, we are grateful to you for this day, for the health to be up and about. Thankful, Father, for Jesus and all that you have done for us, which is far beyond what we are aware of. And we thank you for your great patience with us as we struggle to be more consistent. Thank you for Jesus and for this, uh, this study that you've provided through the Apostle John. Father, there are many uh, among us that we know of who are not feeling their best and have different health, emotional, physical, or mental needs. As we think about those people, we lift them up to you, Father. We know you know our thoughts. I do want to mention our brother Steve Leeming with the surgery he's got uh, planned Tuesday with his back, and I ask your blessings to him in that. Father, we uh, are so troubled and concerned about the mess we see in the Ukraine, it's just the human way, isn't it? And uh, we pray for your working in that, that, uh, that there could be peace soon, sooner than later, we ask. But we pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know you work through the affairs of men as you set up kings and take them down as all this moves toward your conclusion. Thank you, Father, for this day. Pray for your help and blessing on the effort and what we share today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John 19, and um, last week in verse 7, let's see here. Okay, in, in verse 6, Pilate is telling them again, the Jews, the, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the leaders of the group, he said, I find no fault in this guy. And um, the Jews are getting desperate. They had come to Pilate saying, he's an insurrectionist. He says he's the king of the Jews, and uh, that would be a violation of Roman. Uh, we know the Caesars, uh, this is Roman territory, and they're, and they're dealing with, the, uh, the Romans are dealing with, through time, uh, through the years, different revolts of different sizes uh, among the Jews. The Jews don't like their yoke on them, the Roman yoke. And so the Romans have been dealing with this problem with the Jews uh, for a while. 
And so they come to him uh, wanting to get rid of Jesus and say, he's, um, he's, uh, he says he's a king and so he's, he needs to go. So they're going to, um, they're using the political thing and Pilate keeps coming back to them and saying, I find no fault in him. There's no crime I can see. And you say he's an insurrectionist, but he has said, my kingdom is not of this world, and there is no revolt. His followers are not revolting, so nothing's going on. I find no fault in him. So the Jews are starting to get desperate here, and they come to him finally with their, the bigger reason that they really have against Jesus. Verse 7, they said to him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself to be the son of God. Uh, so Pilate's no expert in Jewish law, and so he just has to uh, pretty much take their word for it that, that they have this law that if someone says he's the son of God, that he should be killed. Um, also going on here, there, there are a couple of things that, that are happening. I mean, Pilate doesn't feel good about this execution because number one he knows the man's innocent and then number two in Matthew 27 Matthew's account he tells us that Matthew does tell us he says Pilate's wife has gone to him and said Pilate have nothing to do with this righteous man because I've suffered much in a dream because of him today so Pilate's got that in his ear that my wife is saying that she's dreamed something about him, and she knows he's a good man, a righteous man too, and she said, back away and don't do anything to him. So he's got that going, and then the Jews say, well, he claims to be the son of God, and so he needs to die. And the ancients, uh, pretty superstitious people in general, um, uh, different ones claim to have certain gifts Prophets, philosophers, different ones claim to be representatives of some deity in some form here and there. And so when Pilate hears that, then we get to this verse. This is where we begin. All of that that I just said was not where we begin today. That's just you remembering what was said last week, and I was replaying that. Right, Richard? You, have, you are not here, so see, you've got to just take that for the truth. I'm not, I'm just digressing. Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. So he's afraid to start with. And as John says, now he's even more afraid. He says, huh? And so his next question is to Jesus. And he says, uh, where are you from? Which kind of tells us that he's giving some credence to this charge the Jews have that he says he's the son of God. So Pilate says, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer. Verse 12, after this discussion, from then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. Now the Jews are getting desperate. Pilate's still persisting that I want to release this guy. So now they're getting desperate. And so here comes the blackmail, uh, the threat. So the Jews say, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. You, 
You're not Caesar's friend if you do this because anyone who says, who raises himself or says he's a king opposes Caesar. So this is a troubling thing for Pilate because he doesn't need word to get back to Tiberius that there's a man over in Judea that says he's a king, but Pilate let him go. And then Pilate's head could be on the chopping block if he releases an insurrectionist. So now, so now it gets to be political. Now it's political. Historically, we know, or it is known, that the Jews had filed petitions in Rome against Pilate. Yes. How did you know that was in my reading? Are you a prophet or the son of a prophet? You foresee, you look at notes and things. But actually, I keep scooting closer, see. Pilate had had trouble before, as Richard pointed out. And he had. And so he didn't need this to happen again to have this same charge to go back to Rome that Pilate's kind of loose. He's kind of slack on uh, insurrectionists. So, so now it becomes political and Pilate decides, I've got to do something and so then the, the scripture says he brings Jesus to the judgment seat. So now we, he's going to have a decision. There's, uh, there's going to be a decision made. And uh, so he says again in verse 14 and 15, the Jews are, are shouting away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, crucify your king. And then we get to a really mm, significant statement from the Jews, from the leadership there. Shall I crucify your king? I'm reading now verse 15. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now this goes against their whole history. Isaiah talks about Isaiah 33, 22, Isaiah 46, 44, and verse 6. The Lord God is the king of Israel. The Lord is our king. When, the, when way back in the day when the Jews complained to Samuel, we want a king like everybody else. And Samuel's really down about that. And God says to Samuel, this is 1 Samuel chapter 8. He says, they haven't, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So they get a king. But God takes this personally because he is the king of Israel. And that's how Isaiah recounts this years later. The Lord God is our king. And then the, the high priests of all people say, we have no king but Caesar. So now he's thrown out their whole history, their whole tradition. I mean, the circle of apostasy is now complete. Um. They're charging Jesus with blasphemy and uh, for the high priest to say we have no king but Caesar, you might say that's a bit like blasphemy. They're doing what they're accusing Jesus of doing. Thing is, he is the son of God. And he's going to prove that again. He's proved it several times already in the Messianic miracles that, that the Pharisees and high priests have said nobody can do this uh, but the Messiah. And he does those things and then they don't, don't accept it. 
And of course, Jesus told the, Pharise- the, uh, the high priest in John chapter 8 earlier when we looked at this, he said, unless you believe I am he, that I am he, the Messiah, you'll die in your sins if you don't believe that, if you don't accept that. So he's been very direct with these people. They didn't accept it. Yeah, the, Jeff was saying, if you couldn't hear that, that these, these, lead, these people who were usurping Jesus, uh, they didn't last too long either. Uh, so, good point, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, so we get to uh, verse 18, and uh, Scripture says that John doesn't go into great detail here, like, uh, like Matthew and, and uh, Luke, uh, but he tells us that Jesus is crucified. They crucified him with two others. I, I, I want to mention here, because it's mentioned so often, in Luke 23, uh, in Luke's account, in 42 and 43 is the conversation with Jesus and the thief on the cross. And you, you hear a good bit about that. And he tells the thief who has expressed faith in him, Jesus says, well, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, and, and some people try to make a point of that, that see, there's a guy who, who wasn't baptized. And he's saved. Well, two or three comments on that. Um, in Matthew, Jesus says, after having forgiven someone of their sins already, he says in Matthew that the, uh, the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. And if you recall, when they let the paralytic man down uh, through the roof to Jesus and he saw their faith, not only did he heal the guy, but he says, your sins are forgiven too. And the Pharisees said, what? You can't forgive. Who is this that tries to forgive sins? And Jesus says, son of man can forgive sins on earth. And he says, so that you can know I'm forgiving his sins, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. You know, all of us could say to someone, your sins are forgiven. But if any of us said to someone who's paralyzed, get up and walk, they probably would not get up and walk. So Jesus puts that in front of them, and so he says, so that you know I can do this, I'm going to tell him, get up and walk. So he does, and he does. Get up and walk. The woman that was brought to Jesus, the, uh, the sinful woman that was brought to Jesus, as the scripture says, wet his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the thing. Jesus says the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. We need to understand that Jesus' whole life is lived under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament books. Even though they're in our New Testament, 95% of their content is Old Testament. Jesus has not died yet. They're living under the Old Testament laws and requirements. So turn turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 9, just a couple of verses real quickly here. But uh, the Hebrew writer uh, points this out pretty clearly in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 9 of Hebrews. And he explains this. 
he says that about Jesus, he is the mediator, this is verse 15, Hebrews 9, he is the mediator of a new covenant <clears throat> so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Explanation coming, verse 16. For where a will is involved, or a covenant, or a testament, the death of the one who made it must be established, since it takes effect only at death and is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So Jesus, the Son of God, has the power on earth to forgive sins. He's doing that under the Old Testament. He has not yet died when he speaks to the thief on the cross. Now, after his resurrection, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he's resurrected, so now we're under a new covenant. The New Testament begins at the resurrection. The death of the testator has happened. So now the will is into effect. So now we're in New Testament. So Jesus says, before he goes back to headquarters, all authority, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel, my story about me, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you. So now we have a command to baptize. Now we have a command to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes Romans, he helps us understand why the, uh, the what is going on with this command. He explains in Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? That's where the payment is. Baptized into his death and buried with him. This is by faith. Baptism is an act of faith. It's a work of God, not of man, work of God. We're buried with him by baptism into death that like as he was raised, we too might be raised to walk in newness. A change has happened. He says, for the old man of sin has been crucified with him. And we believe that if we've died with Christ, we'll be raised with Christ. So he explains what baptism's all about right there. He's going back to Golgotha to the crucifixion of Jesus where our sin debt was paid. And he says, when we put our faith in his payment, we're baptized into him. And he says, united with him by faith. Crucifying the man of sin. So it's explained what baptism's all about right there. So Pilate has, verse 19, he puts an inscription on, on the cross with Jesus. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Pharisees see that and they say, look, Pilate, don't, don't, don't say that. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, nope, I've written what I've written. King of the Jews. There's been this thing going on with Pilate and the, high, and the chief priest ever since this trial started. And as Mark tells us in Mark 15 and 10, 
Pilate's evaluating everything and he perceives pretty quickly the Jews are envious of, who, of Jesus. He's about to take their place. They're afraid he's going to replace them. They've got to get rid of him. So they've had this contention and he keeps telling them he's innocent and they say, no, we've got to crucify him. So he says when he puts on the cross, king of the Jews, I've written what I've written. I'm leaving it there. I'm not changing it. Deal with it. Verse 23 and 24, they divide his garments just like the psalmist said in Psalms 22, verse 18. They divided my garments and they cast lots for my cloak, Psalm 22, 18. So through the crucifixion here, over and over and over, up to and including and through, all kinds of prophecies are going to be fulfilled in what happens with Jesus. 28 through 30, Jesus says, I thirst. And he says this, fulfilling another prophecy in Psalm 69, verse 21, I thirst and he drank sour wine. And that's exactly as John as John's account, he says, there's a jar of sour wine there. He says, I thirst, they dip it a sponge in the sour wine and, and raise that up to him, fulfilling Psalm 69, 21. Verse 30, he says, it is finished and gives up his spirit. It is finished being my work as the Passover lamb is finished. This goes, this goes back to the Exodus and John reminds us in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus approaching, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, he says, there comes the Lamb of God. They don't know what he's talking about. Lamb of God. Lambs are sacrificed. What are you talking about? That's a man. But that's the Lamb of God. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ is our Passover Lamb. Our Passover Lamb. Jesus dies at Passover as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. In Exodus, the sacrificial lambs at Passover, when it started, were a sign, uh, were one to protect the children, but it was a sign of Israel's release from Egyptian slavery into freedom, which they messed up but into freedom. That's what we do. We, all humans, we mess up. And they certainly do. Jesus is our Passover lamb to release us from slavery to sin and death into freedom. Our physical death is temporary. It's sleeping, as Jesus says. It's temporary. There's a resurrection coming. And another interesting thing about this, in, in Exodus 12, the Jews were told in slavery there, they're told to eat the lamb standing. You're going to be leaving soon. You're going to eat this meal pretty quickly, roast it, and eat the lamb. And then at daybreak, you're leaving. Jesus said in John chapter 6, 
if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. And a lot of people heard that and they said, this is a hard saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Mm. What? And he's paralleling exactly what happened at the Exodus when the Jews were told to eat the sacrificial lamb before they left at Passover. And Jesus is the Passover. And Jesus is saying symbolically, spiritually speaking, you eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have life. So we're told in Acts 20 verse 7 that the church has this custom of meeting together on the first day of the week to break bread. So, this is what we do every first day of every week. Acts 20, verse 7. We meet together to break bread and to drink the blood of Jesus. It's spiritual, but it has deep meaning. And so we do that every week. That's... That's the tradition that was established by the church in Acts. Every week. Why wouldn't we do that every week? Why would we do it once a month or once a quarter or once or twice a year? Where would we get that example? There's no example of that. It's the first day of the week. That's why we do it. Jesus said, it is finished. Um, but you know, it was finished in one sense and it's just beginning in another sense. It's just beginning. We have a new covenant. We have new access to God directly because we have a new identity. Peter says we're a royal priesthood. As a royal priesthood, we have access to God. Not that we have to be a hierarchy of priests. We're all priests. Christians are part of a royal priesthood. We have a new covenant. We have a new identity. We have new access. And we have a new mission. It's not just to the Jews, but it's to the world. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So, it's just beginning. Um, okay. So the Jews, uh, the Romans are very um, accommodating to the Jewish customs, and they, they tried to be, that was intentional. And the Jews going into Passover didn't want bodies of executed Jews left hanging. The Jews, didn't they bury people that day? So they go to Pilate and said, look, uh, you know, Sabbath is starting soon. Friday night would be the beginning of Sabbath. The, the day began in the evening. And they said, you need to, we need to make sure these guys are, are dead and buried. So go break their legs so, so, they're, so they're dead and we can get them off the crosses and buried before Sabbath starts. So the Romans go around, this is verse 33, 1933, to break the legs 
And Jesus has already died, so they don't need to break his legs. And again, it goes back to Exodus 12. They, uh, Jews are instructed at the Passover at Exodus that the bones of the lamb are not to be broken. Exodus 12, verse 46, yeah. And also in Psalm 34 and 20 is the prophecy that his bones would not be broken. So they come to Jesus. He's already passed. There's no need to break his legs. So completes the prophecy, and he completes the parallel again with the Passover back in Egypt. So they pierce his side to double, make doubly sure that he's not just fainted, that he is dead. Blood and water gush out. He's dead. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. From Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Of course, blood was shed through the whole process of the crucifixion, through the whole execution process. As he's hanging on the cross, he's bleeding profusely. And then blood and water spill out of his side. Scripture says, verse 38 of chapter 19, let me turn the page. After these things, which by the way, let me just mention about his side being pierced. This also goes along with Zechariah chapter 12 about the the piercing of his side and how they stared at him. And Matthew recounts, it's always been an interesting verse to me, but after the crucifixion and he's hanging on the cross and the scripture says they just sat down and watched him. Soldiers. It says, and sitting they watched him there. They're just sitting there watching. And that's a completion of what Zechariah talks about in chapter 12 of the book of Zechariah, how that they would just sit and look at him who had been pierced. Zechariah 12, chapter, 12th chapter, verse 10. So in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he was a secret disciple. Uh, let's see. Let's not be secret disciples. Let's not be secret disciples. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Don't want that. He said, you're like a light set on a hill that people may see you. So that's not in secret either, is it? Let's not be secret disciples. Anyway, he went, uh, let me find my verse again. Who is a disciple of Jesus secretly asked Pilate if he might take away the body. Pilate gave him permission and he came and took his body. And Nicodemus, who was, uh, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths, and spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified was a garden, and in the 
garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And Matthew's account, he tells us that it's Joseph's tomb that he had carved out for himself. Uh, by placing Jesus in a new tomb, there was no chance that his body was going to, that he wasn't going to be in a tomb that was already used. And in a sense, a used tomb would be a tomb that had already been corrupted, per se. And, and uh, they didn't want to, so Jesus was not laying in a tomb where he would be exposed to corruption. Well, also there was a perspective that, uh, Jewish perspective, that if a dead person were touched by the bones of a prophet, that they... See, you're getting ahead of my notes again. You've done it twice. But you're right on track. You're slow on your notes. I'm slow on my notes. Touche. You're right. Actually, the first, the first one I was not going to mention, but I was going to... I thought about mentioning this. See, when Elisha was buried... Some, they buried somebody with him. I do you know who it was, Richard? I don't think the scripture says who it was. I don't know that it names the person. They threw this guy, in, well, they laid this guy in Elisha's tombs, tomb, and when the guy touched Elisha's bones, bones of a prophet, he came back to life. So, hey, guys. So the Pharisees, did, so there was no chance of this happening with Jesus being put in a tomb where a prophet might have been, as Richard said, and coming back to life, Jesus was going to come back to life by his own power. Not because he touched some prophet. So it was a new tomb. Scripture says there's an interesting passage in Isaiah 53, verse 9, how that Jesus was buried with the wicked and with the rich. And what does that mean? Well, the Romans, their custom was when they had their executions was just a mass burial and a common grave. They already had plans to bury Jesus in this common grave with these other tr criminals. So the plans were that he would be buried with the wicked that was already pre prepared and that he would be, but the, the verse in uh, Isaiah 53, 9 says he's also buried with a rich man. How do you do both? Well, plans were made for burial with the wicked, although that didn't happen, but he was buried in Joseph's tomb who was well off. So one, in one burial, both prophes that prophecy is completed on both sides of that. Um, it just happens over and over. When God says something, you can count on it. It's gonna, it's coming, it's coming around. It's coming true. Count on it. So they laid him in a new tomb. Mary comes. Mary comes early on Sunday morning and sees the stone rolled away and goes to tell Peter and John. Now this is really interesting what had happened, and John doesn't go into it, but Matthew does, it, and I think it's worth mentioning in Matthew 27, in the latter part of the chapter there, 62 through 60. So the Pharisees are trying to look ahead, and they go to Pilate and say, look, 
the high priest actually, wasn't it? Sadducees. The Sadducees. And weren't the high priest involved with this? The high priest was extremely involved. Yes. But he's a Sadducee. He's a Sadducee, the high priest? That's right. This man said he would rise from the dead, and we don't want his followers coming and stealing the body and saying he's risen, so look, let's put a seal, let's seal this tomb and fix it where he can't come out of there and where he can't be stolen and where he, the disciples can't uh, say he's risen from the dead because the tomb's empty. So seal it and put a guard there. So Pilate says, okay. Put him in the tomb. I think it was probably a group of four. It might have been eight. Do you know, Richard, if it was four or eight soldiers? Probably four. That's what I'm, commentaries seem to think. So they put a little squad there. There's a name for it. I don't remember it. A name for this group of four. They might have called it a group of four. I'm not sure. And they sealed the tomb. So Matthew's telling us about this, and it says, as they were there, here comes an angel. The earth shook, rattled, and rolled, and the stone is rolled away, and the angel sits on the stone like lightning, and his clothes are white as a Colorado Sunday morning. As snow. Pure white. Soldiers see it, they're trembling, they're shaking, and they go, whoop, they pass out. The angel's sitting there, and here comes Mary. Soldiers are laid out. The angel says, don't, don't be worried, he's not here, he's risen. And he's gone ahead of you into Galilee, and he'll be meeting you guys, tell, go tell the disciples, he'll be there in Galilee. He's back. The soldiers come to, they look over there, and the stone's rolled away, and the tomb's empty. Scripture says some of them went to the chief priests and told them what had happened. They say, we were there guarding the tomb. All of a sudden, the earth starts shaking. We look up. There's this zap of lightning, and there's this guy, this angel that's sitting there, and he's rolled the stone back, and he's sitting on top of it. That's the last we remember. When we woke up, it's all open. The chief priests say, instead of saying, man, God has sent us a sign. There's an angel there. He is raised. He is the Messiah. We were all wrong. No. The chief priest says, don't tell anyone what you saw. You have to remember, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, even though there was one, even though the angel of God came and the soldiers said, we saw this angel. He rolled the stone away. Well, we don't care what you saw. Don't tell anyone. And we'll give you some money to stay quiet. And the soldiers say, money? Oh, well, okay, we'll take the money. What about soldier? You said you saw an angel. You passed out. You were scared to death. They offer you 20 bucks and you're going to say, you're just going to lie? Oh, yeah, man, it's money. 
chief priest also said he'd make it right with the government. Yeah, the chief priest says, we'll cover you. If uh, the government comes back on you, we'll take care of it. Because a Roman soldier who did not fulfill his responsibility mm -hmm. could be killed. Would be killed. So the chief priest tells the soldiers, we'll, we'll cover for you. So lie for us. And they say, well, okay, since, since you're offering us money, I guess we could just kind of say they came and stole the body. It just seems like if you had seen an angel and it scared you so much that you passed out, that you would say, I don't care how much money you're throwing at me. I know what I saw, and I know that wasn't human, and I'm not going to lie about it. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So the soldiers agreed. And then here comes Peter and John, and Lord willing, we'll finish up the book of John next week. And if you're visiting with us, just come back next week. We plan to be here as the Lord wills. Richard, final comment. The two women, they became deacons because they were given a specific responsibility to go back and tell the, the 11 that he had risen. He says the two women's had a specific, the two women's, did I say that? <laughs> the two women were given a specific job. That's like a deacon, a deaconess, to go tell the apostles. Well... God bless, guys. Let's try this one more time. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.